Uh, why don't we uh, commence this time uh, following on from, from our corporate prayer. Let us focus our minds in as we, um, we open up God's word. Father, we, we thank you for this opportunity uh, where we can come here uh, together. Um, many of us already belonging to your, your church, your people, uh, through the sovereign work of your spirit in our hearts, enabling us to come to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus. Father, for those who are here, who uh, your spirit is currently working in, that it's brought them here, uh, but they have not uh, come to know you and, and submit to you truly yet. We, um, we pray that your spirit would work through your word today and uh, there would be conviction and uh, there would be uh, a clear and uh, a precise understanding of, of the good news of Jesus and of the rest that we can find in him. Father, we pray for wisdom now and uh, we, uh, we look forward to uh, what you have to teach us through your word today. In your son's name we pray. Amen. At the uh, beginning of Jesus' public ministry, uh, his authority was challenged on numerous occasions by the Jewish leadership. Mark's gospel, in particular, uh, details five almost uh, consecutive disputes. Uh, Jesus is confronted on his claim that he could forgive sins. Uh, he was confronted on his claim of welcoming sinners, of having fellowship with them. He was confronted on his claims that, uh, that his disciples need not fast uh, in his presence because he is the true husband of Israel. Uh, uh, like God in the Old Testament to the people of Israel. And you don't feast in the bridegroom's presence. And then there are two particular issues that occur, most probably on two consecutive Sabbaths. The first Sabbath incident uh, results in Jesus declaring himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath. It is a direct claim to deity, for only God is Lord of the Sabbath. It is a claim of absolute authority. And the second incident uh, results in Jesus giving a clear explanation and a clear demonstration about the Sabbath's true purpose. Uh, it was a day of blessing, a day for doing good, a day for saving life. And Jesus demonstrated this as he healed the man with the withered hand in the synagogue that Sabbath day. It's this final matter the healing of that man that tips the religious leaders over the edge and, and causes them to set about planning a way to kill him. Now, it's one thing to understand the Sabbath in relation to Jesus and uh, uh, the interactions he had with the Jewish leadership of the time, but it's another thing to understand the scriptures uh, teaching on the Sabbath as a whole. And particularly to ask the question, well, is Sunday now the Christian Sabbath? Well, over the next two weeks, the aim uh, is to do just that. Now, these are important matters for believers. Um, if our God-given desire is to be obedient to Christ, then we need to know 
uh, of certain uh, of whether certain commands still apply to us for our obedience will rely on that knowledge uh, if our God-given desire is to be obedient to Christ, then we need to know the promises of Scripture that we may be encouraged and strengthened to remain faithful to the Lord Jesus all the days of our lives. But these are also important matters for non-believers, uh, those who may be listening here today uh, but have not repented of their sin and have not trusted in Christ Jesus as Lord and Saviour. You need to see... Uh, the blessings that God has for his people that you are currently missing out on. Uh, You need to know the punishment that awaits you if you continue to ignore God, if you continue to live in rebellion against him. Now that might sound stark and harsh, but let me ask, if you were asleep in a burning house, would you not want someone banging on your door alerting you to the danger that you are in? Specifically, uh, in relation to the Sabbath, uh, you may be uh, someone who, who thinks of yourself as a Christian, but you, you, you view Sabbath observance as a requirement for your salvation. Well, I pray today that you are freed from that burden of works righteousness and see that salvation is indeed in Christ alone. So today's sermon is entitled, The Blessing of the Sabbath. And the outline is very simple. We're basically going to take a tour through the scriptures and look at some key passages. We're going to begin by looking at God's rest in the creation week. We're going to then see the command to observe the Sabbath given to Israel under Moses We'll see what the Sabbath rest actually points to in the future. And finally, we'll ask that question, whether the Sabbath is to be observed by Christians today. Simple outline, but some very deep things there. So we pray for God's wisdom as we work through this this morning. So, the blessing of the Sabbath. Point one, we see the Sabbath principle. The Sabbath principle. (coughs) This takes us all the way back to the book of Genesis, doesn't it? And particularly to Genesis chapter 2 and the first three verses. Genesis chapter 2 verses 1 to 3 reads as follows. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he'd done in creation. Now, obviously, verse 1, where it talks about the heavens and the earth being finished and all the host of them, it's referring to the previous six days when God created everything out of nothing, all by the power of his word. If we go back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, it says this, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Only God, the triune God, is eternal. And so the beginning here talks about the beginning of creation, the moment that time began as we know it. 
in Genesis 1 and verse 2, the focus is then tightened. Verse 1 speaks of creation on a, on a grand scale. And then verse 2 speaks of our tiny little planet. It says this, The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hung, uh, hovering over the waters. The earth is shown as the focus of God's attention. In all his grand creation here is the focus. How amazing is that? We must ask ourselves. We shouldn't just work our way through these verses and miss this. God has created the heavens and the earth. And now verse 2, the earth. People talk about going to other planets, but this is the one. This planet is the one on which God has set his affections. Well, throughout the following week, God forms and he fills this planet. And so day one, God creates the heavens and the earth and then he separates the light from the darkness on this earth. Well, by the end of day six, there is a, a fully functioning created order with Adam and Eve standing as its pinnacles, the only part of uh, creation made in God's image and likeness. And those those phrasing there, God's image and likeness, it means to uh, be made to represent God to the wider creation and to be made to relate to him in a way that is unique to the wider creation. It speaks against any evolutionary process. Men and women have been made in the image and likeness of God alone. Well, all this took place over a period of six 24-hour days. The repeated formula at the end of each day makes this clear. And there was evening and morning the first day. And there was evening and morning the second day. And on and on it goes. You'll, you'll note that on day seven, that formula is not there. Uh, John MacArthur, in his book, The Battle for the Beginning, basically an exposition of Genesis chapter one and two, <coughs> he says that there is no such formula used to close the seventh day. But this does not suggest, as some have asserted, that day seven was a long era that covers all of human history. The omission of the formula on day seven suggests that the rest God entered into was a permanent rest from his creative works. He ceased creating and was completely satisfied with what he had created. Now we might ask, well, couldn't the word day here in Genesis 1 and 2 simply mean a long period of time? Well, the word day can refer to several things. Uh, it all depends on the context. Genesis 1 verse 5 is an example of this, where we read that God called the light day and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and morning the first day. Well, here, day means firstly the time when it is light, uh, a part of the whole day. And then secondly, day means the entire period of light and darkness. That is the entirety of the whole day. So even in this one verse, you've got two uh, understandings of what day means. Well, why must the first day here uh, have a 24-hour uh, time period? Well, can it be a longer time than that? For example, 
Uh, we read in 2 Peter 3 verse 8. The apostle read, uh, says this, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Couldn't this be what Genesis 1 means by a day? Well, no, it can't be. And why? The answer is context. Look at what 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So the comparing of a day to a thousand years is not a comment that a day could be a thousand years, but it's to make the point of God's patience with his elect people. The context of Genesis 1 affirms the reality of a day being a 24-hour period. Jonathan uh, Safadi, in his book, The Genesis Account, which is put out by Creation Ministries International, <clears throat> he, he says the following. By comparing scripture with scripture, we can see that this means a 24-hour day. And he has several points here. He says that the word day, either in a singular or a plural, days, uh, with the number, with a number attached to it, happens 410 times outside of Genesis 1. And it always refers to a normal length day. The word evening, uh, followed by the word morning and without the word day, happens 38 times outside of Genesis 1. And it always refers to a normal length day. Evening plus morning with day, happens 23 times outside of Genesis 1 and always refers to a normal length day. Night with day happens 52 times outside of Genesis 1. And guess what? It always refers to a normal length day. And so he concludes, the above usage shows there is no reason in the text to deny that the creation days of Genesis 1 are ordinary days in length. Thus, the denial of ordinary days must be the result of imposing outside ideas upon Scripture. So, getting back then to Genesis 2, the six 24-hour days of God's creative work is summarised by chapter 2 and verse 1, which says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. Well, then what happened on day 7, verse 2? And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And this doesn't mean that, that God tied up some loose ends on the morning of the seventh day, knocked it out before morning tea and then had the rest of the day off. Uh, elsewhere in, in Genesis, the phrase he finished uh, clearly means that the action has been completed in the past. The seventh day was a complete day of rest. Yeah, wasn't it God was tired? Psalm 121 tells us, uh, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And in that context, the one who keeps Israel is the one who made heaven and earth. So God didn't rest because he was tired. But God didn't also rest in the sense that he stopped doing anything altogether. He didn't cease from sustaining his creation. John 5 verse 17, Jesus says, My father is working until now and I am working. So God ceased from his creation work. It was all done. 
and he paused to enjoy it. But we were then told in Genesis 2 and verse 3, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he'd done in creation. So it was a day in the week set apart from the others, devoted to acknowledging the goodness and the greatness of God in his creative works. Now, we see uh, in this that God's purpose for creation did not reach its true heights at the end of day six, the creation of, of men and women, Adam and Eve. No, the rest that is found in day seven, that is the ultimate goal. Now, the Hebrew verb that's translated in in verse 2 and 3 as he rested or God rested is the word Sabbath, which means to desist from work. Now, because of its mention here, some hold that the Sabbath is then a creational ordinance. That means something that is established at the time of creation that's then uh, true for every moment in history that follows. Uh, if this is the case, then even as Christians, we are to recognise the Sabbath, even if that is then transferred to the Sunday, as seen by the evidence in the New Testament. However, while the, the verb, that is the action of resting, is mentioned here, the noun, that is the name of an official day of rest, that is not mentioned here at all. And as we'll see in a moment, it's not until Exodus chapter 16 that the name Sabbath, the official day of rest, referred to as Sabbath, is used. So from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, there is no mention of any official observance of the Sabbath day. Indeed, Adam and Eve lived in paradise originally. He had no toil or hardship to rest from. He worked, he cultivated the garden, but there was no toil involved in that. Work in the garden was a joy, not a burden. But while the Sabbath is not officially sanctioned from Genesis 2, it nonetheless establishes a principle. There's a Sabbath principle here. It establishes a pattern for life. This seems to be one of the reasons that God spaced his creative work out over six days. Because, well, why six? I mean, God could have done it all in a split second had he wanted to. Indeed, when we read in Genesis 1 verse 1 that God created the heavens and the earth, it seems clear that everything else in the universe appeared instantly. But then he took six days to form and fill the earth. And the benefit of doing things this way is that we see God's intimate care and concern and his precision and his design of this world and in particular of his image bearers. But this care extends to establishing the principle of a seven day week. So not only does God bless us with the gift of life, Not only does he bless us with the gift of an incredible environment in which to live, but moreover, he blesses us with the gift of an example by which to thrive in this life. So, Genesis 2 establishes the Sabbath principle. 
But it's not until many years later that any command is given in relation to the Sabbath. And we'll look at this development now under point two, the Sabbath precept. Sabbath precept. Excuse me. It's not until after the exodus from Egypt that the command to keep the Sabbath is issued. Uh, The first reference, as I mentioned, is in Exodus chapter 16. The Israelites are on their way from Egypt to Mount Sinai and they begin to grumble about being hungry. Uh, God says that he's going to rain bread from heaven um, and the people are to collect it uh, every day of the week except the sixth day uh, where they are to collect a double portion. And so we read this in Exodus 16 and from verse 22. (coughs) On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath for the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. So this instruction is given to the Israelites and Israel, which was well known for their obedience to Moses' commands. They did exactly that, right? They gathered six days and double portion on the sixth day. Is that what happened? Of course not. Uh, Verse 27 continues. On the seventh day, some of the people uh, went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in this place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. And so the people rested on the seventh day. So the people disobeyed and they were absolutely scolded for it. But just keep in mind uh, the punishment that they experienced here uh, when we see what happens uh, later when they reach Sinai and the punishment that is given then. The Sinai commandment is is mentioned multiple times in Exodus, most notably in chapter 20 as part of the Ten Commandments. But I want us to to take us to chapter 31 where uh, this commandment is restated and there's some commentary given as well. So Exodus 31 And from verse 14 and 15, it says this. To the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, you shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death to death. Now there is a big difference between the punishment that is given 
in chapter 16 and then the punishment that is promised for anyone who breaks that Sabbath command in chapter 31. As New Testament scholar Thomas Schreiner explains, and he says it quite succinctly, (coughs) the Sabbath command and its penalties were officially established when Sinai Covenant, the Sinai Covenant was confirmed. The Sabbath was a new command unknown before Exodus 16 and hence the penalties at the outset were not as strict. The newness of the Sabbath ordinance in Exodus 16 constitutes another piece of evidence supporting the notion that the Sabbath was not given at creation and it is not intended to last forever. So the Sabbath principle at creation then became a Sabbath precept at Sinai. And the reason for this is that God uses the observance of the Sabbath to mark off his people from the pagan nations surrounding them. It is a boundary marker and it serves as a sign of the covenant that God makes with Israel. Uh, Exodus 31 verses 16 and 17 makes this clear. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So observing the Sabbath was the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. The fact that it says it is to be a sign forever means that is to be forever connected to the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant that was instituted through Moses. But what if that covenant is superseded by a new covenant? One would naturally assume that the sign of the old covenant would no longer operate. Now, would its redundancy then mean it had no value whatsoever? Of course not. There are many things in the Old Testament that are described in the New Testament as being types and shadows, things that pointed towards something far greater in the future. The Sabbath precept was given to Israel as a sign of God's commitment to them. It was a sign of his provision. What other pagan nation could say that their deities commanded them on pain of death to stop working one day of the week to rest uh, to reflect on how their deities had uh, rescued them from captivity none of the other nations could say this their false deities demanded everything from them they were life draining not life giving and so the sabbath was designed as a blessing for israel but it pointed to something far more significant. It looked back to the rest that was found in the creation week, the rest that Adam and Eve blessedly experienced in the Garden of Eden, the rest that Adam and Eve tragically lost when they sinned and were cast out of paradise. So the Sabbath precept looks back, but it also looks forward. Uh, to a future rest, a rest from the toils and trials of this world, a rest that is found in the full presence of God once more. And it's to this that we now turn 
under point three. The Sabbath perfection. (coughs) The key passage (coughs) that emphasizes the Sabbath perfection, the the future fulfillment of true rest, is found in Hebrews chapters three and four. Hebrews three and four. The context uh, of these these verses is that it's it's a warning. It's a warning written to believers not to turn away from the living God, not to give up their share in Christ. Don't turn back to the old ways that you held on to under the Jewish legal system. Christ is better. He's a better Moses. He is a better uh, high priest. He brings in a better covenant. Don't turn back. So it's a warning. Now, it's not a suggestion that true believers can fall away. For the scriptures affirm that those God elects, he also regenerates. He keeps then to himself to the end. But one of the means by which he keeps believers faithful is by giving clear warnings as to what will happen if they fall away. The warnings serve as a way of keeping us in the faith. The example given as a warning in this in this passage is the unfaithfulness of the Israelites under Moses' leadership during the wilderness wanderings. It led to the people failing to enter the rest of the promised land. But even those who did enter the promised land under, under Joshua's leadership they still did not experience a rest that was as good as that experience back in Eden. There was something far greater that awaited. And so Hebrews 4 and verses 8 to 10 explain. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. The connection made here between God's rest and the believer's rest means that it's not speaking about rest uh, from works that lead to salvation. The writer is not making the point here that, that we cannot earn our way to salvation. This is absolutely true. We cannot earn our way to salvation, but that's not the point the writer is bringing out here. By comparing God's rest and the believer's rest, the writer is pointing us to the Sabbath perfection, the time in the future when believers will rest in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, a picture of this fulfillment is seen in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 13, where the Apostle John says this, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labours, for their deeds follow them. When believers enter the presence of Christ, there will be rest from the labours of obedience. Because in this life, we strive against sin. We strive against worldly oppositions. In this life, we experience struggle Uh, And we experience persecution as we seek to be obedient to the Lord. We 
know now the promises of God. And we experience God's presence in us by the indwelling spirit. And so we enter into that Sabbath rest partly now. But one day, one day we will enter that in true perfection. The writer of Hebrews makes it abundantly clear uh, throughout his whole letter that it's only through repentance of sin and faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ uh, that one may enter this rest. But Jesus himself made that clear uh, uh, in his own words, emphasising that the means to enter the rest and the experience of that rest, Jesus declared in Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, Come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, just as God's rest on the seventh day did not entail ceasing from doing anything at all, it's important to know that neither will believers experience a complete ceasing of everything in eternity to come. We'll not just be sitting around on clouds in some ethereal state. The new heavens and the new earth will be a robust physicality. And hence the need for uh, physical resurrection bodies. Uh, we will joyfully uh, serve and worship and commune with God and his people. Just read the last two chapters of Revelation and you will see an incredible picture of what awaits. So the Sabbath precept was a symbol of the final rest, the perfect rest in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, But in Hebrews 3 and 4, there is no mention of any ongoing participation in a literal Sabbath for those living after Christ's ascension. What does the Sabbath mean for believers today? Well, we'll address this now under our final point, the Sabbath particularity. (coughs) The particular nature of the Sabbath is that it was the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. And we've already seen that the sign was to last forever. But uh, this didn't mean forever in isolation. It meant as long as the Mosaic Covenant lasted, the Sabbath would forever be its sign. Sabbath observance is what marked Israel off from its pagan neighbours. It was one of several boundary markers that identified God's people. The others were food laws and circumcision. But with the arrival of the new covenant established by Jesus' death and his resurrection, the old covenant has been superseded. Hebrews chapter 8 speaks of the superiority of this new covenant. The writer says this in Hebrews 8 from verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he, that is God, finds fault with them when he says, and I won't quote the whole thing, but he goes on to quote uh, from Jeremiah 31. 
the great Old Testament prophecy about the new covenant. And then he summarizes in verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So God's people now includes anyone, Jew or Gentile, who repents of their sin and believes in Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. The old markers are gone. No more Sabbath, no more food laws, no more physical circumcision. Baptism is now the sign of the new covenant. And since Jeremiah 31 says that all within the new covenant community will know the Lord, then the sign of baptism is rightly applied to believers only. And that's the teaching position uh, of, of our church here. Now, the end of the Jewish boundary markers is brought out in three particular places in the New Testament. And just make a note of these first two, Galatians chapter 4 and Colossians chapter 2. You can look those up later. But I want to draw out from Romans chapter 14. Uh, Romans 14 and 15 is, you know, in crude terms, essentially Paul's discussion about what Christians can agree to disagree on. (coughs) And he says this, Romans 14 from verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honour of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honour of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honour of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So here you can see the nature of the Sabbath, a a special day that's observed, and uh, the nature of the dietary requirements, the food that's eating. Paul's already dealt with... um, the end of physical circumcision back in chapter 2. So he doesn't need to bring this out again. Under the new covenant in Christ, these things are no longer a necessary requirement. A person may continue to observe the Sabbath. A person may continue uh, to observe the Jewish food laws. But these should not be enforced on anyone as a matter of obedience and salvation. The fact that Paul refers to the Christian brother who continues to observe these things as the weak brother shows the freedom from these things that is found in Christ Jesus. So, these have become matters for a person's own conscience. In Jesus Christ, the believer is no longer under the Mosaic law. The law has been fulfilled by him. We are now under the law of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 21, Paul speaks of his uh, uh, ministry to the Gentiles. And he says this, To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Now, essentially, he is saying that when he was out evangelizing Gentiles, he didn't need to follow the stipulations of the Mosaic Covenant. However, this didn't mean he was outside the law altogether. No, he was acting under the law of Christ. Now, the law of Christ 
is all that's taught or endorsed by Christ and his apostles, and it fulfills God's requirements in the Old Testament. By looking through the lens of Christ, we begin to see which parts of the Old Testament are are still binding. And we begin to see which parts of the Old Testament are, are actually types and shadows of things to come. Uh, you may uh, know of the, the older uh, understanding of the law that gets divided up into the moral, the civil and ceremonial and, and only the moral aspects uh, are, are transferred for us as Christians. But even in the civil and ceremonial, there are moral aspects to it. Uh, so it is, it is too hard to discern that into three categories. Uh, a much more helpful way is to look at things through the law of Christ. Because it helps us understand why, for instance, the Sabbath is a type that points ahead to the rest that we find in the new heavens and the new earth. It's a Romans 14 category of having grace with those uh, who still choose to obey it. On the other hand, it helps us see why uh, something like homosexuality is not a Romans 14 issue, but it's decisively a Romans 1 issue. No matter where we are in salvation history, homosexuality is sinful, as explained by Paul and and by Christ Jesus. Indeed, not to limit it to homosexuality, but that's why any sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage is declared as sinful, whether that's adultery or whether that's premarital sex or whether that's homosexuality. This doesn't mean that the Old Testament law is bad and that we should... Do away with the whole lot. Romans 7 verse 12. Paul says the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now that we are under the law of Christ, the Old Testament law of God is no longer binding to us as law. However, it is authoritative over us as scripture. And as scripture It continues, as the great John Calvin explained, it continues to reveal our need for a saviour. And it continues to reveal what is pleasing and what is offensive to God. And so with the psalmist, we can declare, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. So, While the Sabbath is no longer binding to believers, we still acknowledge Saturday as the day that God completed his creative work. It continues to serve as a reminder to trust in his promise and to recognise the necessity of adequate rest and refreshment and recreation. Under the new covenant, however, our focus turns to Sunday, the day in which God completed his redemptive work with the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath, but it is the Lord's day. And next week we're going to speak uh, uh, distinctly to this matter. In closing, however, let's remember that the Sabbath precept points towards the Sabbath perfection. The time Uh, The true rest, sorry, the true rest from labour that all believers will experience in the new heavens and the new earth. 
This, of course, is only possible because of the Lord's day and his victory over sin and death. It's only possible because there is a risen saviour seated at the right hand of the throne in heaven. But of course, his work is only beneficial for those who trust in him, who repent of their sin and submit to him as Lord. And so let me close with finishing the words of of Hebrews chapter 4 that we looked at earlier. And may its warning have the desired purpose of keeping Christ's people faithful to the end. The writer concludes by saying, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we are so thankful uh, for the way that you have revealed yourself through salvation history. We thank you for the principle of rest that you established uh, at creation, a principle that we uh, can follow, that we understand that we as, as creatures uh, cannot continue on our merry way without taking a break. But Father, we also recognise how you uh, brought that into law for the Israelites. Father, what a gracious thing that was to order them, command them, to rest in you. Uh, that is such an incredible thing. But we also recognise how that points to the perfection that all believers will experience uh, in the new heavens and the new earth. As we come to trust in Christ and turn away from our sin, we enter into that reconciled relationship with you and we, we experience in part what one day we will have in full. Father, for those who may be here today who have not experienced reconciliation to you, who have not repented of their sin, who have not come under Christ's lordship, may you continue to work in their heart by the power of your spirit and your word and convict them of the necessity of that. For without reconciliation to you, they continue to rest, uh, to continue to sit under your wrath and will experience that played out for eternity instead. Father, we thank you uh, for uh, the importance of the Sabbath that we learn. And we look forward to next week as we come to understand more about the significance of the Lord's Day. Ultimately, Father, we are so thankful that we serve a risen Saviour. And may we bring glory to him all the days of our life. Amen.